difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. As we said last week, we're making some changes to the podcast for 2022, so you won't hear our usual round robin of recommendations at the end of this episode. But you will hear the usual second half of our weekly discussion as we talk about a new movie that has some things in common with the classic picture we talked about last week, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale's Beauty and the Beast. Mamoru Husada's Belle is the latest take on the classic fairy tale. And initially, it seems like it's aimed at being a relatively traditional version of the story, apart from moving the action from a fantasy setting into a science fiction one, with half the action taking place in a fully immersive virtual reality world called You. But Hasada, the writer-director of anime movies like Summer Wars, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, and the Oscar-nominated Mirai, is just as interested in the real world. In the You reality, the title character, Belle, is a beloved pop diva, one of the most famous forces of the world. In reality, though, she's a shy high schooler named Suzu, who's still struggling with grief over the mother she lost in childhood. Suzu's friends and home life play a much bigger role in this version of the story than they do for her Disney counterparts, and what seems like it could be a swooning romance with the monstrous beast, the scourge of you, turns into something very different. What's Asada getting at with this version of the fable, with its threads about fantasy versus reality, the meaning of art and community, and the need for self-sacrifice? We'll discuss that after this break. you think your mom would want you to be happy? Suzu! Come be in the picture with us! <sighs> happy? But how? Welcome to the world of you. You may not be able to start over in the real world, but you can start over in the world of you. With its unique body-sharing technology, you was able to draw out a user's hidden strength. I can finally sing again. She made it on used global music charts, just as I expected. I'm so sad! Nobody in their right mind would ever guess that Belle's user is actually a mousy nobody like you. I guess it's true that everyone's hiding some kind of secret. Susie, something wrong? This is typical internet behavior. Why does he do stuff that'll make people hate him? To preserve the peace in you, this creature must be disposed of. Who are you really? He's in danger. What? Wait! I have to help him. attention to a single one of your songs. I want to hear Belle sing! Yes! Yes! Suzu! I'll be 
sing. I believe that maybe I'm the only person here that's seen other Hasada movies. So I, I feel like I went into this equipped and uh, maybe you all didn't. Am I am I wrong about that? I saw Mirai. I'm not an animal. I saw Mirai. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, it's my first time and it made me want to check out more. I, I, I like this movie. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you, uh, going in without that underpinning of what Hasada does with his movies, what, what did you all think of Bell? I guess I didn't really know what to expect um, because I wasn't familiar. You know, actually, I take that back. I think I've seen his, I think he directed some of the early Digimon uh, films that I know I reviewed. <laughs> oh, some of your all-time Digimon favorite movies. For, for the AV Club back back in the day. Although I suspect that's probably not a representative uh, example uh, of his work. So, I mean, I didn't know, given that's premise, knew, uh, knowing it was a, a science fiction-y thing, I didn't know what kind of anime I was going to get because I, I just didn't know, you know, um, to have it so grounded in, in the real world or the world we know or the non-online world, I wasn't expecting. And I thought that was some of the loveliest stars of the stuff of the film. I, it really is just barely science fiction. I guess we can get that in a little bit, but it is it, it is like just a few moments in the future, really, this this kind of online community. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the second life, right? Is, is, one, is that, that the one? It is, yeah. I think you're making a second life joke, yes. but it is really close to Roblox, which is a game I know that, that are, I, I, my kid is still plays very regularly. I, I think yeah, Lily still plays it, right? It, yes, uh, that is an insult. It is an insult to the look of this film that it is to compare well, to Roblox. No, but, but I mean, they, they, you know, this is, it is, especially during quarantine, it has become a really big part of my kids social life yeah. is getting together with their friends and playing robots and having avatars on, and, online yeah. and having avatars and having this sort of this virtual virtual world obviously it's within the in the context of the film is a much more sophisticated online world and also much visually a much visually more visually rich uh, uh film yes. than, than 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 roblox but also like you know i i have quote unquote been to a uh a little nas x concert in in roblox <laughs> so like these things are these this, this virtual world is really <laughs> Oh is used God. for this sort of thing wow yeah it's a good show good show yeah yeah <laughs> i i had no idea such thing uh occurred that's incredible keith coming from the perspective i'd seen mariah and my impression of mariah and, and now bell is just what a strong connection this filmmaker has with how the young people feel it's an emotionally animated experience and 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 it kind of it just it and it felt quite rich in that respect you know seeing uh you know you know what bella is 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 going through you know you learn about her past uh, you can certainly identify with her present and her her the awkwardness that she feels trying to fit in and then also you know the intensity of where she finds herself in the you you feel that as well and, and it just it just it seems like he's just in touch with how to render just the tempest of a young person's emotion into something quite lush and um you know a real experience i i i was uh quite bewitched by this film yeah i was surprised to find myself connecting much more to the parts of this film that took place outside of view and to kind of talk about the preconceptions we brought into this i i don't have 
experience with Mamoru Hosada's films. But I did know um, from some stuff I edited for Vulture that uh, my beloved Cartoon Saloon did some background work and was kind of like a big part of the look of you. So that was sort of like, I was expecting to go into this being really wowed by this world. It's not that I wasn't wowed, and I am willing to chalk some of this up to the fact that I was watching a screener on a on a TV, and there may have been some pixelation uh, issues that were were not in a part of the <laughs> of the world. Although maybe they were, I I, I can't uh, say definitively. But I think I just had a little bit of a hard time connecting emotionally to what was happening in you, which is, I think, kind of what you need to have happened <laughs> for this movie to work. You do need to feel the emotion taking place in there. And I think just not fully connecting to the visuals was part of that. And I think I also just never really got the stakes of this world, like with like with the whole like biometric aspect of it and how you like enter and exit the world. Like it seems like there's a little more going on here than it just a simple video game. But I don't want to say I want more logistics of how it works because <laughs> I don't think that would have helped, but I didn't get a sense for I, I didn't feel grounded in you, which again is maybe part of the point, but I felt so much more like just connected and engaged with what was happening in Suzu's real world and her her backstory uh, with her mom and her love of music and her friends, you know, just sort of the coming of age high school tale part of this is what I found myself connecting to a lot more. And I'm willing to bet that that would change on a second viewing. I think this was maybe not the ideal way to watch this. It feels very much like a thing that you want to see on a big screen and be immersed in. But yeah, the everything outside of you, I loved, I cried, I, I loved all the river imagery uh, happening. But uh, yeah, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around how I feel about sort of the, the bifurcated nature of this movie. I kind of feel like, first of all, I'm I'm right there with you on feeling like we don't understand you well enough for it to seem like a place that has stakes essentially and i can't help but wonder if like that's the rules of the place or well, well like a lot just... of things oh, we'll get into it in just a second but the the point i wanted to make here is that i wonder if it's a translation issue because hmm. necessarily a, a movie like this that's trying to put a lot of big heady ideas on on screen is going to simplify the dialogue a bit in order to to get things into like subtitleable form or even more so mm -hmm. if it's trying to translate it into English and then fit that English into the characters mouths. So I wonder if there's more to the original movie that we're just not getting in terms of like we're given to understand that when people plug in their interfaces to you it somehow like transmits all of their physical senses into this virtual mm -hmm. reality that like a biometric match of their inner self is created that you feels exactly as real as the real world. Like we're told all of this, but we never see any consequences for it. We never yeah. have any reason really to treat you as a real place, which I find a little odd. Yeah. So that, that was a critical part of it for me in terms of connecting what happens in you to what happens in reality is that note about the biometric translation there. Uh, the fact that this avatar, this character that Suzu creates or it was created for her in you, Belle, I guess, is her, you know, it is an aspect of her. It shows her 
dreams, her potentiality, you know, is a realization of something substantial that she cannot bring herself to in the real world. And, and, and to me, the contrast between where she ends up in you as this really popular central figure, you know, and the way she both imagines herself in that place and then also how that place is an extension of who she actually is, you know, and then it contrasted with, with, you know, the reality outside of you, I, I found that very moving. And that was kind of my connection to that. That's why that dynamic kind of worked for me uh, um, between the two places. I don't necessarily separate the two, you know, as far as the actual rules of the place, how they work, how it works, how you get in and out of there, I, you know, maybe that's a little bit harder to parse for me. But I think, again, as an emotional experience, there was that continuity for me between those two worlds. But here's the thing. I don't necessarily need uh, to spend like five minutes on explaining how the interface works. What I want is a sense of what you is for people who aren't Bell, because that's what would have made this feel maybe a little more grounded or, or realistic for me. I feel like the setup here is very much like, uh, God help us all, the setup in Ready Player One. Where, mm -hmm. you know, we'd, we would all much rather spend time in this uh, amazing virtual world where incredible things happen than in our day-to-day -day lives, which are full of problems. But we never see really anything of you that isn't just all of the characters except Belle drifting vaguely around. It's all Belle-centric. To me, it, it was really just trying to be an extension of how we already use the internet. I, I thought the world, the rules of you were kind of the rules of social media mm -hmm. in a way where everything was sort of quickly judged and, and intentions uh, shift very quickly and, and what was a big deal yesterday gets forgotten. And I, I think the fact that, that, that you, know, you know, Bell is a star here, but most people aren't, but everyone's there to one degree or another, I, I thought it, it really was just sort of, uh, like I said before, a, a you know a, a moments into the future version of what the internet is for us now, and I, that's that's what kind of what made it powerful. And I think, you know, so much of the story is about how you know you know you go to you, you have to you can reinvent yourself and you can start over, but you, but but you can't really. And 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 I like that it wasn't you know real world good virtual world bad it was not it was i think it was a much more complicated depiction of 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 online life than that and and a richer film for it i hear with what you're saying and and agree with you scott in, in terms of bell i think where it loses me is more with the the dragon slash slash the beast and the whole threat of his unveiling and sort of just the threat of unveiling in in general, you know, and these sort of what, what do they call them? The, <laughs> oh, I guess it wasn't yeah. it wasn't unveiling. I think it's unveiling the is what it's called. Yeah, it's the dock. Yeah. Yeah. it's their form of it's like the you use form hmm. of doxing. All right, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm I'm being convinced, but <laughs> but I, I guess like there's just the whole thing with you know the dragon being chased by Justin. I just love that he's named Justin. That's, I think, where I like lost the sense of stakes and or where the stakes didn't align with what was happening in the real world with that character. But especially because like getting unveiled is what ultimately saves that character. So I don't know. I'm still kind of putting it together in my head, but I think there's just sort of an inherent like weightlessness to the world of you that maybe makes you have to reach a little harder for these like connections between it and the real world. I think that there's a, a very logical underpinning in the fact that we only really see 
what this world is to Bell, and the the world that we see seems entirely Bell centric, with nobody else having anything going on except her. But I don't find it emotionally satisfying. Like I love watching Bell ride around on her giant speaker whale, speaker whale, just <laughs> singing. Like love that thing. It's a gorgeous visual. But what I'd like is a sense that. Like other people are similarly living out their fantasies or expressing their inner lives or really just doing absolutely anything other than reflecting Belle back at her. And I understand the metaphor here in terms of, you know, people go on the internet and they kind of like live in a little cloud of their own making. They curate their experiences. They sometimes get very angry if they're forced to interact with people who they didn't want to interact with or in ways they didn't anticipate. As I say, it all makes intellectual sense as a giant metaphor for the internet and how we use it. But to me, that doesn't necessarily make the the space itself feel real. What I wonder now, though, is if are we becoming too accustomed to world building as a thing that has to be done? You know what I mean? Like, like do we, you know, because I, I think about something like, you know, Ralph breaks the internet. If you want to think of something like a comparable example, like that is an animated movie that is devoted to showing us this entire world and how it works, you know, and, and, and that happens in soul and that happens like they want to show us every aspect of, of this world. And that's, it's not, but that's not necessarily what bell wants to do as a movie, you know, bell is one is, is really connected to Suzu and her, experience you know so so we can con- we can consider y- you as something like something comparable to, as keith said to the internet and we can make assumptions about it as being a place that people will explore in myriad different ways i mean this is a, v- a vast virtual space and i think we can kind of a- almost intuitively know what that what that is kind of like but what is important here in the way the in how the film is operating is is to show us her perspective and that's the perspective that we're that we're sticking to and and that in, in whatever the world that she sees is the world that we're going to get and nothing beyond that kind of scope that's beyond the scope of what the film is actually trying to do in my view Yeah, I just I think that when you invent a giant wish fulfilling fantasy world in a story, you have to accept that people are going to want to know a little bit about that world and and understand a little bit about that world, even if you personally feel that what what that world is for anybody else is outside the scope of your metaphor. But I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on that because there's so many other things we should be talking about in this movie. I think we can just kind of acknowledge that it is actually a really interesting movie about online interactions. Like there, among other things, Belle quickly finds out that everything she does draws criticism from hordes of people on the uh, internet. Yeah. And her her real life kind of best friend, who also kind of becomes her producer and promoter as a, a VR pop star, thinks it's great that people hate her. She's she mm-hmm. basically says like if you if you weren't drawing controversy, if half the people out there didn't hate you, you wouldn't be nearly as big. You wouldn't be nearly as important. Like she just takes it for granted that like of course millions of people are going to dump vitriol on you and make up lies about you you're you're on the internet that's just how it works <laughs> and and this is probably a good sign because it means people are talking about you it's like a very oscar wilde way of looking at the world but it's hard for somebody like suju who's who's so sh- shy and not wanting yeah. that kind of attention to process 
the intensity. I don't think it's pro- hard for anyone to process that kind of intensity. Though, did anyone else get kind of like Josie and the Pussycats kind of vibes from a lot of that stuff? I mean, just like, <laughs> because I was thinking about like how technology was making it to where the kids were all, were going like, to put put on the, the little ears or whatever and, and like everything that Josie the Pussycats puts out. And then when they, and when, then when you, you don't have that mediation, when people can actually express how they feel about you, then, then things get a little bit, you know, more complicated. And uh, it was always one of my only quibbles with that very fine motion picture is that, is that when that technology fails and, and when the audience is faced with, you know, an unmediated experience with, with Josie and, and the band that, that none of, nobody walks out, like nobody kind of makes that decision hey wait this is it for me anyway that's neither here nor there but i did feel uh, that same sense of like how a pop star a sudden pop star relates to hordes of fans and uh you know the, the two films kind of rhymed for me in a, in a weird way i did not think of uh josie and the pussycats at all but one thing that really occurred to me a lot watching this was the films of satoshi khan Specifically, just like the visual busyness of this film reminds me a lot of Paprika. But the the going back and forth between this reality and this fantasy that that kind of like feeds your inner self is there's a lot of millennium actress in that idea as well. And then the idea of being a pop star dealing with the fickle fame and the heaped hatred of all of these people feels a lot like some of the stuff going on in, in Perfect Blue. So it definitely I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how this film would fit into a giant f- film festival with. Uh, some of Satoshi Khan's best. So I didn't think of Josie and the Pussycats until you brought it up, Scott. And like, I, I, I see why that part made you think of it. But kind of where I see it maybe a little bit more is Josie and the Pussycats is much more explicitly about like commodification. But one of the aspects of Bell's stardom that struck me is that it seems to be predicated on other people remixing her songs or, or, or like producing her songs. You know, like the the singing seems to exist outside of the music. There's a line she tells Hero at some point, but you know, like other people are putting the music to it or something. I, I can't remember the exact how exactly how it was expressed, but there is sort of an indication that her singing really is being taken and used by others outside of her control. And it doesn't really seem to bother her because it seems like what Suzu wants is just to sing. Like she's not after stardom. She's not after popularity. It, It seems to mortify her. What's important about you is that it gives her her voice back. It gives her song back, you know? And then it's sort of turned into this stardom where it becomes like sort of in possession of other people. It's not hers anymore. And I think that is sort of what is kind of a little heartbreaking about her stardom in you. Yeah, I think there are aspects of the we were talking about specifically, Genevieve, the emotional qualities of this film in the real world. There are aspects of it that felt a little overplayed or a little overdone for me, just in terms of how big and how intense and how performative the emotions get. But the sequence, the the kind of montage of what her mother was to her and what music was mm-hmm. to her 
leading mm. into the moment Tears. where she was <laughs> <laughs> like mime, big bubbly anime tears i'm crying right now <laughs> leading into that moment on the bridge where teenage suzu tries for what is clearly like not only not the first time but like one in a very very long string of attempts tries to sing again and just immediately has a panic attack and and vomits and the the transition between that and her being able to sing in you like all of that is just it gold you know it's mm-hmm. it's so clean as a a metaphor basically for for the break from reality and for the difference between who you can be online or who you can be in your fantasies versus what you feel like in real life and and that kind of extends to the other characters as well but you weren't were you, but and you, but you were were you un, unmoved by when by the holy within the you phenomenon of of her you know making a connection this connection with so many people that to, to where they're able to kind of like where she's overcome with emotion and they kind of carry the song for her i mean like i don't know that's that's a pretty moving moment no is it just just me I wasn't unmoved at all. I think it's I think it's a beautiful the the way it's specifically visualized in terms of this vast crowd and in, in terms of like the the little heart light thing mm-hmm. that's meant to express bringing out your inner self through art. I think it's all gorgeous uh and I I really felt the fact that I was not seeing this on an IMAX screen, which it, it opened uh, in theaters a few days early in IMAX. And I, I hope people get the opportunity to see it in IMAX because it would it would kill on an IMAX screen. I'd love to see that whale up on a big uh, screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I was thinking when I was watching this. It killed those. here. I mean, it was here at the Chicago Film Critics Festival, and it, it won the Audience Award over you know, the power of the dog and red rocket and a lot of like really, really high quality films. People did respond to this movie, uh, as a big screen experience, certainly. But of course, I mean, it's, it's, you know, self-selecting crowd. that's going to really rush out and, and see this movie. And I just, I just think this director has a talent for kind of hitting his intended audience. You know, I think I feel like there it's very full of feeling this movie and Mirai both. I will agree with you on that. I My only problem, specifically with the scene that you're talking about, but with this film in general, I had a tendency to feel like he lets scenes stretch out yes. too long. And that that went for the the big concert uh, connection thing as well. Like, I felt like there was a moment there where you saw what was happening and, and the emotion peaked and it's really beautiful. And then it just goes on and on and on. And it yeah. kind of re- repeats the elements. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But, but Mariah, I was, I remember seeing Mariah and thinking this thing is incredible. This is like one of the best films I've seen this year. And then it was like, no, it's and then by the end it was like, no, you, this has gone. This is way too <laughs> flabby, uh, an experience, but, uh, but he's getting there. Yeah, it's with with Mariah. I agree. It's it's the same kind of thing. It's a really, really great idea. And then it just kind of becomes a little overstretched. Mm -hmm. My only issue with that scene of which you speak, and this is fully a me issue, is that it reminded me of a similar scene in Annette. Mm. (laughs) And that took me out of it a little bit. Is this the one where baby Annette is uh, just a baby? Uh, no, no, the big, uh, the big performance okay. uh, in in front of the, the, at the big game. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I understandable that that you would think of that. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about 
Abel and Suzu and their relationship and their relationship to the U, but we've spent almost no time on the Beast, you know, which is the the other half in theory of of the Beauty and the Beast pairing, and is the driving force behind a lot of the drama and implied romance. And then when it goes in a very different direction, <laughs> uh-huh. like a lot of the the pain and trauma of this movie. What did you make of? the beast's identity and the relationship that develops there. I mean, I was mostly kind of confused and a little dissatisfied mostly. And I think that maybe that was my conventional expectation for what, I mean, I think it was, it seemed to be signaling very strongly who the beast was (laughs) throughout the film. And then when it used, and then when it happens, it's like, Oh, okay. This is all way. This is not at all where I thought this was going. And I, I don't necessarily think, I was ended up being surprised ultimately in a good way, but it does, you know, at least offer up another side of Suzu as a character that, you know, other than someone who might be, you know, feeling some kind of affection, romantic affection for this character as, uh, you know, as we might expect. I mean, this is, there's another element to it. Um, it brings out another side of her that's unexpected at the very least. I, I'm not saying it's satisfying, but at least it's certainly surprising. It's definitely the D, none of the above answer to, to <laughs> the, who is the beast. Uh, but, you know, I thought it, uh, you know, I, again, I, I did find it, I found it a little confusing, too. But the more I think about it, the more more I liked it. It certainly is another parallel between her and her mother who, you know, and her willingness to sacrifice herself and protect children and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, and the actual depiction of the interactions between the real life uh, Suzu and, and, and the, the yeah, I, I want a key. K. Uh, my 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 first name without the th on the end. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I thought I found that one really quite. It was emotion. You know, part of because emotions are so heightened in the depiction of it, but I I found it really quite moving. I liked it too. I'm. I mean, I understand exactly where you're coming from, Scott, in terms of feeling kind of a disconnect with what the movie seems to be promising you and where it goes instead. But I liked that aspect a lot, partially just because. I feel like there are a lot of red herrings in this movie in terms of the beast's identity. I, I think you are kind of set up for, well, it's clearly this, but if you're paying attention, you'll realize it's actually this. But if you're just guessing wildly, it could be this. Actually, here are three more options that it could be. Like by the end, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And I like the idea that it's kind of D, none of the above. Cause to me, I think that really speaks to the degree to which we all kind of like live in our own little worlds, uh, which is again, very appropriate for this, this internet phenomenon. You, when you're faced with mysteries, you unravel them in terms of what you, what you know and what you expect. And the answer is usually, well, the world doesn't revolve around you. Like maybe the answer to this mystery has nothing to do with you. Uh, and the fact that you can't see outside your own experience is, is kind of part of the story here. I kind of love how odd and random that reveal ends up feeling. Yeah, I could I could feel myself resisting it as it played out because it seems at face value to kind of take the emotion of the narrative away from Suzu and place it in the hands of this new character that we don't really know anything about characters, I guess, because they're they are brothers. And I'm I'm right that the younger brother was the little angel thing that uh, was her first fan, right? I, I think 
Mm. I don't recall that ever being spelled out, but after the the film, I I had the same sort of theory. Well, that that's got to be the, <laughs> yeah. the uh, truth, my, yeah. right? It, my daughter Isabel, who watched uh, Bell and and really uh, loved it, that was her feeling too, and she she wa- she watches these things pretty closely. So so I think I yeah. think she's probably right on that. Yeah. So, um, but that's just an aside. What, what I was saying is, like, I could feel myself resisting it for that reason, but then as it resolved and it became apparent that this wasn't going to be like a romantic pairing, which I wasn't convinced of until the very end. And that was making me uncomfortable if that's how they were going to set up this happily ever after. So I'm very glad that didn't happen. But when it did resolve uh, in this way that, as, as Keith points out, kind of creates a parallel with her mother and gives closure sort of to her losing her mother, it clicked for me. And I, I, those problems kind of evaporated. Well, I feel like we've we've done one of those things where we dove so quickly into the details. We, I'm not sure that we ever really got the big picture. We've talked about kind of our quibbles. We've talked about our defenses of our quibbles. We've talked about different ways that different aspect of this uh, movie hit us. But what's your big picture? What's your overall? Like, did you did you like this film? Do you recommend this film? How did it, it strike you as a piece? Yeah, I mean, I felt like, uh, Tasha, you and I kind of came in hot with our, <laughs> you know, our, our, our quibbles with this film and maybe overshadowed the fact that like, I do, I do like this movie and I do recommend it, you know, my issues with it are more, I think, based in sort of my own kind of expectations and, and hangups going into it and possibly a not so great screener experience. And I think what I what I like about it, and this is maybe send, sending us into connections, but what I like about it, like as a pairing is that it is like, it feels like sort of the platonic ideal of a like a next picture show, new film that is like inspired, like cl- there's clear inspiration from Beauty and the Beast, like visually, <laughs> there are actual shots that are taken from the Disney Beauty and the Beast in, in this film. And there's obvious this whole little like, central part of it that is very much Beauty and the Beast, but that's like not what the movie is. Like the movie is something bigger and different. You know, Beauty and the Beast is like the the little enchanted rose under the the bell jar of this movie, you know, you know. Um, but it's not like well maybe that's not quite the best metaphor. No, I was but thinking the, the same thing. I was th- not yeah. that specific metaphor, but I was thinking the same thing. This is this yeah. is kind of what we look for where where it's mm-hmm. you know not a one to one one to one connection, but but there's mm-hmm. the more interesting for it. Whereas it's sort of running yeah. with some of the stuff from from a well known film. It very much does its own thing. It's not trying to replicate a, a previously done thing. It's, not I the mean, live action Beauty and the Beast Underworld, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I end up feeling that this movie is very messy. You know, it's it's got a lot of characters and elements that it brings in but doesn't necessarily have the time for. It's got what feels like a lot of loose ends. It's got a lot of scenes that kind of stretch out and, and feel a little over baggy. But in the end, just like the the purity of the emotions and the the quality of the metaphor, I, I really kind of love the way this movie deals with the fickleness of Internet fame and the degree to which it's it's difficult to get across anything resembling truth in an environment where a million people are all talking at the same time and, and playing an extended game of telephone. I think it's a very smart film about uh, the internet and, and parasocial relationships and uh, just sort of like virtual life and, and fantasy life and our inner fantasies and how we express them. I think it's trying to do a ton of things at once. 
and not all of them quite as in quite as a satisfying a way as others. But I just I also just really like the look of this film. And I like the the feeling of being in it at times, uh, whether it's whether it's doing big uh, tear jerking emotions or just like like big evocative joy. It's an ambitious movie and it's pretty crazy. And I tend to like both of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I gave it four out of five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I saw Keith gave it three and a half stars in the reveal. Yeah, so, uh, like came down hard <laughs> on fight, it. Fight, fight, fight! No, um, this, this, that is that's, as hard, that's usually as as stark a difference as uh, it gets between Keith and myself on stuff. Uh, but I don't know. I, I'm I'm still looking forward to Scream, despite your misgivings. But yeah, but, no, but it, the is, time... it is. I mean, if you like, you know, to see something skillfully rehashed for the millionth time, then yeah, you'll enjoy it. See, that's so snooty. How can I? How can you even? Uh, how can you even stand to spend time? with me um but uh, yeah so uh, no I, I i like this film and i think it's 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 emotionally unruly and and maybe that results in it being longer than it needs to be and having loose ends and all this other stuff but it, you know the other side of it is that is that um it, it's very deeply felt and quite beautiful to look at and uh, i was swept up in it for the most part I think emotionally unruly is a a really effective way to describe this film and Given everything we said about the Disney Beauty and the Beast and how, I guess, emotionally ruly it is <laughs> in terms of how how tight and how efficient and how edited it is, these two stories that are kind of based in the same fiction and the same feeling end up being just really radically different. Uh, but they do have some pretty strong parallels. So uh, we're going to wrap here and we'll be back after this break to talk about the connections between Beauty and the Beast and Belle. Reading biometric information. Initiating body sharing technology. Syncing vision. You may now see you. Now synchronizing your cognitive functions and registering sensations from your limbs. Please stand by as we transfer your physical senses and body control over to your AS. to the world of you. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about what they have in common. Scott, you want to kick us off? Uh yeah, I, I mean I think one of the big ones here is is our protagonists in both films, Suzu and Belle or and uh you know both, both <laughs> Oh, that's going to be confusing, okay. isn't it? <laughs> Suzu <laughs> Belle, Suzu slash Belle and Belle. How how's that confusing? <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, let's just, we'll just say Su- Suzu here and, uh, and you'll know that. Should we call, should we call Disney Bell uh, beauty? Uh, no, we can, we can, we'll get, oh God, this is going to be like a who's on first type of thing, isn't it? Um, we'll just say, just pronounce the E at the end of the bell in, 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 uh, in the Disney version and we'll yeah. be, Thank you. And no one will be Thank confused. Uh, well, let me, let me see if I can find my way through here. So, so, uh, Suzu and, and, and Belle, the, character in the Disney Beauty and the Beast. These are both isolated and marginalized uh, protagonists. They, they are both uh, missing a mother. They're, they are both probably thinking that there must be more than this provincial life. Uh, they're pro- probably, you know, one doesn't actually explicitly say it, but you can, you can tell she's probably thinking that uh, her world is a pretty limited 
I would say though the the the, the key difference to me, and this is something I, I think I've I've spelled out a little bit in both. I, I spelled out a little bit in our, the first half of the, the the show when we talked about the Disney Beauty and the Beast was that I think in the Disney Beauty and the Beast we have a we have Belle who is quite simply conceived as you know a lover of books and and something she wants some something out there is going to be bigger than than the life that she currently leads and then she discovers what that thing is and that and that we learn more about her character and the aspects of her personality and what she's capable of you know as she makes her way through the movie and, and with suzu there's there's a little bit of that too of course but but we're also given a lot of information about her up front, the parameters of her life are more complex, uh, are more thoroughly defined. We, we, we know we get all of this flashback uh, material with her mother and their relationship, which is quite moving. We, we get all of this. We get these scenes with her, with her best friend. We, we get scenes with her at school. We get scenes with her, with her and her dog. You know, we, we do. We, we get a sense of like who she is before she enters into the world of you. And then and then there we, we learn th- new things and she learns new things really about what she's capable of and that's one of the things i find so again moving about the movie bell is that she makes these discoveries this this biometric avatar this this part is this thing that it really is a part of her is showing her 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 power and her ability to express herself and to connect with other people and uh and i found that quite moving so so it's just it almost has, it has to do with the, you know the way in which the, these uh uh you the way in which we learn about these two characters is a little bit different in terms of just how the information is given and and i think a lot of a lot of information is sort of front loaded into the movie bell uh, that isn't uh, in uh, Beauty and the Beast. They're also both, you know, considered funny girls. <laughs> you know, I think in in the song Weir- Belle Weirdos. in Beauty, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I, I think the line is, uh, you know, she's a. It's a pity because she, but she's a funny girl. You know, she's like a beauty, her, but a funny girl. She's she's a beauty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also a line about it's a pity too. But anyway, the idea that they're both just kind of weirdos, and the reason that. Belle of Beauty and the Beast is a weirdo is because she has her nose in a book all the time and doesn't want to marry Gaston. And the reason that people find Suzu odd is a lot more complicated. Like she, it's because she can't stop crying. Like she's crying all the time and it it upsets people, you know? And she and as we're shown, she has very good reason to be sad and withdrawn. And I think that indication there is that people don't know how to handle trauma in in, in other people, you know, or or people generally don't know how to react to trauma being expressed in in other people, Uh, even sometimes their closest friends. I think Hiro Hiro is a character that I actually end up liking quite a bit in this film, but, you know, she's introduced as being very kind of cruel to her friend for her behavior. So, I think Again, it's just sort of another example of how Belle, the movie, gives its protagonist just a little more there there. Because, you know, like the the Belle of Beauty and the Beast is, as you said, has lost a mom, but we don't know why or under what circumstances or how it's affected her. We can maybe assume it has, but it isn't, you know, woven into her characterization as being like, odd and someone that people don't know what to do with. I, I think it's relevant that Belle and Beauty and the Beast 
is isolated entirely because uh, the community is bad. You know, they're shallow and judgmental and uh, caught up in their their own stuff. And they see reading as weird, which I don't know how that town supports a bookshop, especially yeah, since right. exactly. <laughs> she doesn't ever buy books. She just borrows them. But, you know, leaving that aside, she's perfect. You know, she's uh, she's beautiful. She's kind. She's uh, sweet. She's giving. She's generous. She's loyal. She's dutiful. She's, uh, you know, all of the things all of the time. She's a perfect Disney heroine. And the fact that she doesn't fit in suggests that that's because the community is like at fault. They're shallow people who are willing to uh, take up pitchforks and torches at a moment's notice over something they don't understand. And, you know, their their god king is a, a blowhard asshole. So it but in 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 Bell, yeah, Suzu is isolated for reasons that are are far more internal. I mean, yes, she's traumatized and she doesn't know how to come out of that shell, but she pushes other people away. You know, she's mm-hmm. withdrawn and pallid. She doesn't express she has all of these questions but she doesn't express them to other people she has all of these feelings but she doesn't reach out to people even people who are reaching out to her and there's much more of a sense of her creating her own problems not in the sense that it's all her fault because she she is dealing with this trauma but in the sense of if she changed her behavior and when she does change her behavior, she fixes everything. I feel like in, in Beauty and the Beast, there's much less of a sense that she could do anything to like repair these relationships that wouldn't involve just like giving up everything she cares about and, and everybody she is to be what they expect her to be. And I think that makes Suzu a lot more relatable than the 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 perfect girl who is just misunderstood and not appreciated. Suzu is somebody who struggles with the gap between what she wants and what she feels capable of, um, who doesn't know how to bridge that gap. But she's still so much more surrounded by people who are trying, actively trying to help her, people who care about her and support her, even if they sometimes support her in bullying ways. Or from the weird distance that anime often puts between teenage boys and teenage girls until somebody utters the words, uh, I like you, or you're the one that I like. So, I, yeah, that's, that's the big difference between them for me is just the difference in their relationship to the community and where their issues come from. So we've, we've dealt with the beauty side of things. We should probably deal with the, the beast side of things, specifically the beast from Beauty and the Beast and the drag, dragon from Belle, both of which are quite, they have, they're similar in some ways. They're, they're both appealing looking or at least intriguing looking uh, monsters. Uh, I think that the uh, dragon's palace in uh, Belle is the, the, the place where it, the film evokes the Disney Beauty and the Beast the most. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the ballroom and 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 just the general look of dragon calls it back as as well. But I think the, the eyes, bi- it's all the about eyes. the eyes. Can, it's the expressive eyes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but um, the, the, the big difference here to me is that Beast is, is cursed to wear his beastly form, however soulful his eyes and, 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 and regal his appearance. Uh, whereas uh, Key takes on the form of dragon as, as to, to symbolize who he is on the inside, even though that's kind of what Beast is a, as well. I've, that divides him, but what I think unites him is that, that there's something about the design of them and the behavior of them that kind of belies 
their outward appearance that makes our protagonist want to uh, know the better. Is that how it worked for you guys watching this film? Watching they're, both they're films, projects. They look like the, they look like <laughs> fixer uppers. The fixer uppers. Fixer uppers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, I could change him. The the the, the heroines say. Well, and dragon specifically. I mean, well, both of them, but Suzu as Bell is drawn to Dragon when he is being persecuted. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's after Justin, who I think we can graft on to Gaston yes. pretty oh, for sure. easily. You know, I, I think his and everyone else's reaction to Beast is what pushes her toward him. You know, mm-hmm. that's not the case with, with Bell and Beauty and the Beast, but we do see that same persecution play out and the bell slash beauty character uh you know protecting slash uh defending the beast in that scenario what i mean what about their appearances what do you think they're also both children oh yeah for sure that's well true if we're gonna run with the whole uh beast was 11 when he was are, yeah. are we going to go with that? I mean, just it just feels wrong. I mean, but they the specifically say twenty first birthday, and that it's been ten years. So you yeah. put the numbers in there. I'm sorry, I can do basic math. He's eleven. See, this I also think that, that like... the the stained glass uh, story animation, like r- really pretty clearly, seems to depict a yeah. little boy yeah, uh, re- rejecting that witch. Especially he especially looks young when she reveals herself as uh, a, an adult. You know, mm-hmm. he he looks like a freaked out little kid. Uh, he was a little tired. And uh, then he was a little shit, and then you know he got punished. Is there a panel where he eats his parents? Though that's that's <laughs> I, Disney wanted to avoid. I keep going back. They, Disney wanted to avoid the whole age gap discussion entirely, so they they, <laughs> did, they had to make it that way. One thing, one aspect. I mean, this is this is has to do. I, well, no, I was going to talk about Justin, but I guess this is uh, we're talking about Beast. Beast. I mean, Justin's a beast. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, yeah. I mean, both he, of you these could movies argue are... he is the real beast. He, the Justin real is the real beast. beast. The real just, villain just all along. Gaston is the real beast, I, I guess, of Beauty and the Beast. But, but I was fascinated by the Justin character of this idea of unveiling, which is which is the, you know doxing basically of uh, um, and and how that was valorized in the world of you until it isn't uh, about how we think about virtual environments and, and, and the policing of virtual environments. Um, I thought that was an interesting side element of bell of, of, of feeling that we, that uh, of, of there being a school of, of thought that these virtual spaces need to be monitored, you know, and even if they need to be monitored, like who 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 do we trust to do the monitoring? You know, and if 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 it is someone of of a uh, corrupt and vindictive nature like Justin, you know, perhaps it's better not done at all. I thought it was kind of an interesting element of the of that story, and in having that also be the worst thing that could happen to you in this environment, which is true, I guess, in our world. I guess being being doxed is a very scary an awful thing but also but the other but the difference i think too is that in bell uh being doxter being unveiled is about you know losing uh this avatar uh this version of yourself that you've created that's real to you and is important to you this you know and that isn't you that is some extension of you that that being torn away is not just losing your identity but is actually just losing that separate presence um that exists in this virtual universe so i don't know this is something i was thinking about while watching that movie 
All right, you're convincing me of the whole stakes thing, Scott. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I love to convince I'm people reevaluating. Of steaks. Delicious stakes. I just, I think it's significant that that they're both beasts, that they're both these huge bulking monsters, like disguising these wounded little children. The size and the intimidation factor for both of these characters uh, in their their beast forms is just about having the strength and power to push people away. You know, both of them are hurting. Both of them need help. Both of them need support and love. And both of them have this exterior that people can't get past. You know, it's both of these films kind of have the same message that because somebody is ugly on the outside doesn't mean they're ugly on the inside. Whereas somebody, you know, very conventionally handsome, which Justin also is, he's got that same giant Gaston chin and, uh, you know, he's, he's drawn as a very like idealized uh, male figure, but he's very ugly inside. He's exactly like Gaston. He has a power and he kind of glories in his power and how he can use it to bully others to get his way. And he justifies his ugly acts by claiming that they're for the community, by claiming that he's doing the necessary things and helping other people. But on a fundamental level, he just enjoys having power over other people and, and being able to hurt them with community support. Whereas both of our beasts are isolated and outside the community because they're they're misunderstood and all of these stories have been made up about them to explain why it would be justifiable to uh to treat them with with violence and rejection based on the fact that nobody else has ever actually talked to either of them or tried to find out who or or what they are because of that fear of of the monstrous exterior that's a pretty simple metaphor on the face of it and not at all the metaphor that the original beauty and the beast was about but, uh, you know, in, in both of these cases, it's kind of being weaponized in a people look at something they they find unattractive and ascribe a lot of personality uh, attributes to it without necessarily understanding the disconnect between what something looks like and what something actually is. Okay, so I think we can move on to another strong sort of connection as contrast between uh, these two films, which is that they are both fundamentally musicals. Music and singing are are very central, but in very different ways. I mean, Beauty and the Beast is operating in a sort of musical theater tradition um, where you have sort of specific types of songs that are advancing the story or at least uh, correlating to what's happening in the story. Whereas uh, Belle is operating much more sort of in a pop music sphere, like she is a, a pop star. But the music in Belle is much more of a storytelling point without actually advancing the story. As we talked about, like, Suzu being able to sing again and find her voice is like a big emotional component of this movie. And it has to do with music. And it is expressed in song the same way that the emotions uh, come th- are expressed in song in Beauty and the Beast. But the we're not being told necessarily what is happening in those songs. It's operating it, like I said, in a, in a pop music mode. Um, and I think 
both are very successful. I actually really love the songs in Bell, and I have, I have listened to them a couple times since since watching. Obviously, the the language barrier prevents them from being anywhere near as sticky as the songs in in Beauty and the Beast, you know. But I think in both cases, the music and singing, uh, singing what is inside of you, singing your heart, as it were, is is central, but just deployed in, in very different ways. The songs in Bell don't factor into the storytelling, really. They're just, they're really just the film's idea of pop songs or, or music that might catch fire in this particular realm. And, 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 and it all relates back to this idea of, you know, sincerity and emotional truth and expression on Suzu slash I'll just say Suzu. I'm not going to say Belle because that's, again, getting confused here. But on Suzu's part, uh, of especially something inside her uh, that really is, it has to do with kind of the emotional tenor of the song rather than the specific content of the song. Whereas obviously mm-hmm. the songs in uh, Beauty and the Beast are, are full of, you know, wit and, ver- and verve and have different important storytelling goals, I guess, than, than the ones in the film Belle do. I think uh, part of the dynamic here, though, just kind of comes from the fact that in Beauty and the Beast, you've got the usual musical question of, are these characters actually singing? Hmm. Like, do they actually live in a world where it makes sense that everybody breaks out into, like, choreographed songs where everybody is interacting with each other musically? Or is this just meant to be kind of a metaphor or, you know, meant to be a stylization? Whereas in in Belle, it's just so clear that the, the songs are important as songs, that the songs are important as something that the, the character really is actually doing. And that has an effect on people because it's what she's actually doing and and because it's something that not many people can do, especially the way that she does. And ultimately, because she gets them to do it all anyway, uh, there's just there's such the, the disconnect between the stylization of we express ourselves in song because within the fiction of the movie that's that's the way the movie is shaped and we express ourselves in song because song gets at an essential truth that also kind of gets into the performance component of both of these two where as you say in in beauty and the beast there is sort of this question of you know if these songs are actually happening but i think in a song like like be our guest you know there is a very clear performer and audience in in that scenario as opposed to something like uh bell singing uh she wants something in the great wide somewhere or whatever here her big i want song moment you know so there's it's kind of having it both ways i guess in beauty and the beast whereas bell is her very specifically performing in, for an audience but not out of a desire to perform you know she's not looking for stardom she's just looking to express herself and and like we keep saying to get her voice back so the fact that it adds this element of performance and audience to it and how that changes the dynamic of her sort of emotional connection to this moment i think is interesting one of the many things i wish i understood a little better in bell in terms of understanding the characters and and the stakes in the world is just what she gets out of doing music the way she does music in you. 
because we go very quickly from she steps into you and she realizes she can sing again and she's singing for herself to she is putting on these giant performances for for yeah. literally millions of people and we get the impression that there's a lot of money being generated through some means or the other and that heroes just dump, dumping it all into charities like that isn't the motive we get the impression that Suzu has become famous and has a zillion followers, but that also isn't motivating her. We never really get the sense that she loves connecting with people through music or that she loves performance, that she loves an audience, that she loves being infamous. Like all of these things are uncomfortable to her and being so visible that people feel free to express their, their worst feelings about her uh, just makes her want to die. So, I guess I would just love to know why she ends up riding a giant space whale covered with speakers around and, and doing these huge performances as opposed to going and like finding herself a, a quiet virtual reality studio and just singing <laughs> because she loves singing and, and she gets to sing. I don't fault the movie for giving us these visuals because they're amazing, but I would love to know like where her her heart is in all of this around singing. I mean, I guess I don't. I don't completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, I feel like gasp, Scott feel, Tobias. You don't agree with something I, I'm saying? Yeah, no. I mean, I think that you. I think that some of it is correct. I think some of some aspects of fame, of this fame that she's achieved, make her uncomfortable. Certainly, being disliked. I mean, there's the intensity of it is un, unnerving, but it's also validating too. I mean, this is a, this is someone who is feeling very lonely and un, 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 unheard uh, who is who is now in a place where she is widely embraced and and uh and and connecting with many many people many scores of people and of course that would be emotionally validating for her um i don't know i, I felt like you know the the immensity of of her following i guess or the it was um for the most part quite you know gratifying for her i didn't i didn't feel like the whole thing was uh disaster in any way yeah she didn't seem averse to it in, in any way and it also seemed like well at first she I, is in the in the real world like like hero definitely has to like calm her down she's like sure. freaking or, out just dismiss <laughs> everything that she says about her feelings i don't i don't think yeah. there's a lot of calming or nurturing there's there's basically just a lot of like ignoring yeah. it and and shouting at her about the way it is it it just seems like everything's in public in you. So like finding a quiet like you know karaoke bar or whatever yeah. to to, <laughs> to to belt belt it out was not really an option for her. And, and also, I mean, you know, I'm going to quote a college professor of mine. And when when questions of plot arise, you know, you don't have a story without it. You never never underestimate the power of narrative drive uh, when in explaining why sing a uh, story oddities. Yeah, it's not that I think it's it's missing or that the story can't happen without it. It's just something I want. You know, it's just something in the back of my yeah. head that's like, okay, but I wonder how she feels about that. It's certainly not a flaw that leaves a hole in the story. It's just in a movie that's so much about emotion and connection, I don't feel like I ever really understand how she feels about making that connection until she has a reason to need to make that connection in order to save somebody's life. So the, speaking of people saving people's lives, I, I wanted to bring in the whole question here of uh, father and daughter relationships, which I think is one of the big uh, links between these movies as well. In Belle, Suze's father is just this sort of ghost haunting her background. He wants to make connections with her 
and she kind of won't let him. She she won't eat dinner with him. She won't have conversations with him. He reminds her of of what she's lost, and she just kind of like leaves him behind at every step. Whereas Belle's life kind of revolves around taking care of her father, who's eccentric and erratic and uh, prone to making very bad decisions and, and getting into big difficulties. Do you mean crazy old Maurice? I do mean crazy old Maurice. <laughs> There's just a a sense that that both of these girls are like a lot of what's both what's important and what's missing in their lives is this relationship with family and the the degree to the to which they are or are not connecting with their fathers or they are, or are not having to be the adult that uh steps away from their fathers you know bell gets herself into trouble because her father gets into trouble and and she volunteers to replace him like she offers herself up as a sacrifice for him Suzu expressly rejects the idea of offering yourself as a sacrifice for somebody until she offers herself as a sacrifice for somebody else. So her father's non-presence in Belle really interests me. I I was positive that the big reveal of the film was going to be that he was the dragon, that all of this like quiet background and non-emotion he seemed to be experiencing was hiding this this deep passionate pain and loss over losing his wife and his daughter essentially rejecting him and i was actually very surprised when that turned out not to be the case it just seemed kind of believably like a believably alienated relationship to me i actually never thought of him as a, as a dragon candidate uh although I, looking back the fact that he's not presented as one might make him more of a suspect but it just struck me as 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 a dad who's trying to reach out to a daughter who was making herself inaccessible. And, you know, I, I found her quite touching, uh, although I was a little, as a father, I was a little <laughs> concerned by the whole, you know, okay, just go ahead and take a bus to Tokyo to deal with some problem you're not going to describe for me in any way. Uh, I'm sure you'll make good decisions. Come back when you're done. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not, not, not great parenting, in my opinion. I, that whole thing, Thing was pretty bizarre to me because I, I could accept him doing his best to support her and and indicate his trust for her, especially after it was already too late. She was already on that bus. Sure. But those five choir ladies who know the full extent of the problem and decide to let a teenage girl go deal with it on her own. One of them says something to the effect of, well, she insisted. And it's like, okay, since when has what a 16-year-old insists is the right course of action been the right way to decide what the right course of action is for, you know, five adults who know knows full well, like, what she's getting herself into? Do they specifically say Suzu is 16 or is, are we just, like, kind I think of I've seen guessing. 17. Uh, I think yeah. the, pres- the press materials say 17, even if it's not within the film itself. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's splitting hairs, but I do think, you know, thinking of Beauty and the Beast, because Belle is like 16, I don't know, Disney princesses are famously young, but it, I think it's still kind of ambiguous. But these stories, these classic Disney fairy tales, um, and just, I guess, classic fairy tales in general do kind of, you become an adult a lot earlier, at least if you're a woman, you know, like the, like the princesses are not really thought of as girls, even though they are, you know, anywhere from 14 to 17. And, you know, the sort of them having their own agency outside of their family is often a big part of, you know, them becoming adult within the context of the story. So I kind of see Suzu fitting into that mold 
a little more like she is becoming an adult within the arc of of this story. So I'm not really going to fault her dad, (laughs) you know, but I do understand the reaction as a father. (laughs) I should say something, but I don't think I have anything just to add to this. Not even as a father? Not even as, as a father of daughters. What about a father people of love, a, people love, people a love teenage that, daughter? Love that, love that construction. But I mean, it's it's relevant that they're both teenagers, uh, regardless of when Disney princesses come of age or regardless of uh, when a a girl in a, a country village in 18 Murchersmurf or whenever the heck this, uh, this movie is set is considered an adult and can marry a, a man roughly the size of a barge. They're both teenagers, and it it is their their relationships with their fathers should be relevant in theory. But one of them is uh, crazy old Maurice, the the absentee guy who keeps getting himself in trouble, and the other one, I think, is maybe a model for Suzu's difficulties at, at connecting with people. I mean, do we do we think that some of her shyness and and standoffishness and inability to make emotional connections in the real world is inspired by her dad being the same way. I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know necessarily inspired by because he is, as you said earlier, like processing his own trauma and grief in, in this situation, but I think they amplify or their individual trauma responses just kind of bounce off of each other. And, and you know, so they aren't able to come together and, and heal in any and, and way. And insecurity too. I mean, they, that, that was the thing mm-hmm. with, we get with the flashbacks with, with Suzu's mother is, uh, you know, a sense of right. play, but also confidence being instilled in this, in this girl, you know, and, uh, and that was kind of, you know, stripped away. No, but though at the same at the same time, I mean, I I think what she ends up carrying with with her towards the end of the film, but uh, Bell, this is this is Suzu and Bell is is um, the memory of her mother's you know c- courage, you know, inspiring her as as well, and her mother's you know uh, that 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 carries forward I, in terms of the the father's impact on that uh, it is uh, unfortunately a little minimal, but of course then the father's impact on but. <laughs> on Belle and Beauty of the Beast is that's not the most important relationship in the film either you know I mean it's, it's a motivating relationship in the sense that she has to kind of like spring him uh, from bungling his way into this <laughs> situation but uh, and she cares about him but uh, and he's and he's he's obviously a more you know a sweeter openly sweeter father to her than than uh, Susan's father is to, to her, but um, but it's still a very you know minor relationship, I think. Well, agreed. I think that'll mostly wrap it up for connections, but uh, there, I mean, there are a lot of like little minor things that we could talk about here and there, like the fact that both of these heroines end up uh, being driven pretty hard by duty, by particularly their duty to other people, to protecting other people. Or the fact that both versions of the Beast have like these little clouds of uh, weird inhuman helpers around them. Mm-hmm. But the ones in Bell don't actually seem to have autonomy and, and actually seem actively jealous of uh, Bell or really anybody else who enters his space. Any other connections between these two movies stand out for you? Well, I'm going to ask you all th- this one. Is there a corollary in Beauty and the Beast to the guy who's really into kayaking in, in, in Bell. 
ones. Uh, I don't. Um, I, I can't think of any. I mean, uh, plot wise, no. But I think uh, in terms of sort of slapstick potential, he's our LeFou. Okay, there you go. <laughs> That's fair. I mean that that scene where he's like lunging at people, screaming, "Do you want to join my kayak club?" Yeah. A, a canoe club, I think, in the the translation I watched. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Can on the other hand, he does seem to be very good at it, and he wins the heart of of the uh, of the most beautiful girl in school yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah and he yeah. also Kay- kayaking—that's a secret, apparently. When when he's lunging <laughs> around yelling about uh, his canoe club, definitely what I was not picturing was uh, you know sleek racing, uh, like crewing. Maybe that's why I was thinking it was kayaks. It's, I don't know. It's it's an oddity. <laughs> It's just an unanswered question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at least he's more appealing than LeFou. He may be uh, like clumsy and loud and, and not much loved, but like at least he doesn't have a, a bad case of uh, snaggle teeth and uh, like tomato nose. <laughs> he's, the, he's the jug. He's well put he's, together. He's, uh, he's eccentric, but, but, uh, but appealing and cute and, and, and charismatic in his own way. He's a beauty, but a funny boy. <laughs> all right I'm, I'm i'm just gonna having uh having dropped that i'm gonna run off and and close this uh shop up the 1991 beauty and the beast is streaming on disney plus uh it's on amazon prime it's available in 25th anniversary dvd and blu-ray versions bell is currently rolling out an american theatrical release uh we know that theaters may or may not be safe but if you have the chance uh, i would recommend seeing it on an imax screen if you can That's it for this revamped edition of the Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Scott, you want to tee us up for our new episodes coming out February 1st and 8th? Fair is foul and foul is fair whenever we disagree on movies, Tasha. But maybe the Scottish play will bring us its customary good fortune. Many have tried to adapt Shakespeare's Macbeth before, including Orson Welles and Roman Polanski, and now Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, his first solo directorial effort, definitely proves that his brother Ethan is the funny one. Shot in black and white, Cohen's adaptation stars Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, who set a gruesome series of events in motion when they follow a dark prophecy to power. Though Cohen is known for his irreverent wit as a screenwriter, he stays faithful to Shakespeare's play, which echoes through movies like Blood Simple and No Country for Old Men. Not so Akira Kurosawa whose 1957 classic Throne of Blood took a free hand in bringing the action from Scotland to feudal Japan, where Tashir Mifune's samurai warrior gets his marching orders from an evil spirit in the forest. Our next set of episodes will be a tale of sound and fury signifying something. For now, we welcome your feedback on Beauty and the Beast, Belle, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and come talk to us on Patreon, where you'll find feedback letters and discussion. Before we close out this episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can follow me on Twitter at kfips3000, where I, I tweet about uh, where I, where a lot of my work, which is places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, and The Reveal at thereveal.substack.com, which is the newsletter, the frequently published and, and beloved newsletter that I do with uh, Mr. Scott Tobias. Scott, what about you? Where can we find um, you? The, the reveal, the sub, the thing. And actually, we should say that we uh, that this will drop kind of in the middle of a of a three part discussion we're having about Sundance uh, 1992, which is uh, uh, which is inspired by a series uh, of 
uh, that is currently on Criterion Channel. It's called, called Sundance 92, the year Sundance exploded or something like that, or the year Indie exploded. But lots of really interesting films to talk about, and so maybe you can play along at home. Uh, and uh, as long as while I'm here, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, my work is also uh, the New York Times, uh, Vulture, and other fine uh, publications. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and I guess I will plug my Twitter at Genevieve Gosky. Tasha? Do you want to plug your dog's Instagram? Ooh, yeah. You can find me on Instagram at Genevieve Gosky, and you can now find my dog on Instagram at Ladybird the Horgy. <laughs> Horgies <laughs> are the cutest dogs on the planet. That particular dog oh my gosh. sits in the weirdest way I've ever seen a dog sit. <laughs> what the heck is up with that? Are you posing this dog for Instagram, Genevieve? Nope, nope. She did that all on her own. <laughs> all right. Well, come visit uh, Genevieve's dog's Instagram for all natural sitting. <laughs> You can come find me on Twitter where I do not do any all natural sitting whatsoever at Tasha Robinson. <laughs> you can uh, find my writing increasingly. Uh, it's it's a little slower right now, and I'm actually doing film writing again. It's been kind of exciting. Uh, I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>